The gospel reading for the morning are the last 10 verses of Matthew's gospel. Immediately preceding this text is the Easter account in Matthew, which was an earthquake. Listen now for God's word. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say, his disciples came by night and stole Jesus away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, And remember, I am with you always to the close of this age. The word of the Lord. They are called the three hardest words to speak in the English language. I don't know. I don't know. It's one of the hardest things for most of us to say. Child psychologists gathered a dozen six-year-olds in a room and told them a story, a very simple story, about a family's trip one day to the beach, and then they began asking questions about the story. Did they drink lemonade at lunch? The story doesn't say, but one of the kids said, absolutely. The other said, of course not. Did they listen to music in the car during the trip? Again, a yes and a no, but the story is silent. It seems that the children would do almost anything to avoid saying, I don't know. I wonder where they learned that. Anyway, then they shift to other questions on other topics. Is a sweater angrier than a tree? Yes, said one girl. No, said a boy. Is red heavier than yellow? One boy went on five minutes proving that red is in fact the heaviest color there is. Anything anything to simply avoid saying, I don't know. It's a challenge to admit that we cannot see our way ahead. Saying, I don't know about what's next, we don't do that so well. Supposedly when the great reformer Martin Luther preached the last sermon of his life about 10 days before he died, there were only five people in the congregation. It's said that Luther was quite upset. He could not see how everything he had worked for would turn out. He thought it was all lost. How do you know today what's going to happen tomorrow? How do we know that? Seth Godin calls this the Goldie Hawn problem. In 1776, Edward Rutledge signed the Declaration of Independence. Among Edward Rutledge's direct descendants is the actress Goldie Hawn and her actress daughter Kate Hudson. What are the odds of tracing that and predicting that? 
You could be standing at Rutledge's deathbed in 1800 with complete and total knowledge of his genetic makeup and the chances you'd predict that outcome are zero. Just as the most trained geologist a million years ago, if there were such a thing, could never have described what the precise boundaries of the Grand Canyon would be today. Given how unlikely it is that we would ever predict Goldie Hawn, the best posture is obvious. Assume our plans are wrong. Expect that you will be surprised. This comes into play this morning as we listen to these very last verses in Matthew's Gospel. It wouldn't be off base to look at this dramatic ending, disciples being sent to all nations, all tribes, everyone, and find ourselves asking, how did we get here? More than that, how did Jesus get here? A careful reading of the gospel may lead us to believe that Jesus himself would have said that awkward word, that hard word, I don't know. We don't like the thought of Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth after Easter, saying, I don't know. But look carefully at Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do. Don't be like them. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent out the disciples with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciple of what? All nations. Was Jesus wrong in chapter 6? Was Jesus confused in chapter 10? Something happened to change Jesus. Jesus had told them to avoid the very people they are now telling, being told that they have to go to. Frederick Buechner has written, principles are sometimes what people cling to instead of God. To be a Christian means, among other things, to be willing, if necessary, to sacrifice even your highest principles for God or for the sake of neighbor. Jesus didn't forgive his executioners on principle, but because in some unimaginable way he loved them, principle is even a duller word than religion. Could it be that Jesus, who earlier in the gospel was heard to be said, let your light so shine before others that they see the love of God. Be ye reconciled one to another. Turn the other cheek. Could it be that Jesus' words were also working on him? God's love and power melt all principles, no matter who you are. In the, word, in the world of law, one of the more interesting and exotic challenges faced by attorneys concerns the possibility of changing the terms of a solemn trust, Tom Long has noted. Someone has died, and the will sets up a trust fund. Income will go to the Billings Home for Children so long as it remains a Lutheran orphanage, or to Mansfield College to support the high ideal of educating young women, or to my son Anthony, as long as he remains faithful to the principles of the Christian faith. But Billings is now a state school for the deaf. Mansfield College went co-ed 10 years ago. And Anthony, 
He's in Tibet learning how to be a Buddhist monk. What now? A voice from the grave says, this isn't the future I envisioned. And the law must determine how much power over the living we give to the dead. Here, after the earthquake, which was Easter for Matthew, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes it clear that God's future is not what any of us would envision. Here at the, at the end, Jesus sets his followers free. He empowers them to live resurrection everywhere. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead makes it clear that God's future is not what any of us can envision. This can work on us in surprising ways. In his autobiography, Breaking Barriers, newspaper columnist Carl Rowan tells about a teacher who greatly influenced his life. Rowan relates how this teacher, Francis Thompson, had given him a sense of his opportunities in God's great creation. One day she read a quote to him attributed to Chicago architect Daniel Burnham. Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir our blood and probably in themselves will not be realized. Make big plans. Aim high in hope and work. In a speech 30 or more years later, Rowan recounted that event and then a newspaper uh, story was written about his speech and about his reference of his teacher, and that found its way finally to the teacher, Frances Thompson. She responded by writing to Rowan, you have no idea what that newspaper story meant to me. For years, I have endured my brother's arguments that I have wasted my life, that God wanted more for me, that I should have done something better with my life. When I read that story that you gave me credit for the launch of your marvelous career, I took that clipping and put it right in front of my brother. And after he read it, I, see, I said, you see, I didn't waste my life. In God's great world, my life has made a difference. Maybe that's what was Archbishop Desmond Tutu's thinking one night when he was being interviewed about his life. Tutu was asked, what's the one message that you received as a young person that you try to now convey to anyone you meet? Without hesitation, Tutu responded, live a God-sized life. As a young man, that was what the minister of our parish in South Africa told me. He said, God has called you. God has claimed you as God's own. In everything you do, live that truth. Live a God-sized life. In her book, Operating Instructions, Anne Lamont tells a story about an interview that was on 60 Minutes several years ago. A family is being interviewed. The family consists of a religiously devout mother in her 30s, her somewhat older and painfully shy husband, and their 10-year-old daughter who is bound to a wheelchair because of spina bifida. Every year, every single year, this family made a pilgrimage to Lourdes in France, a place you may have heard where physical healing is said to occur. According to Lamont, the interviewer, Ed Bradley, was giving the family a hard time for being so gullible. At one point, he turned to the little girl and said, when you pray, what do you pray for? And she said, I pray for my father, that he won't be so shy. 
it makes him terribly lonely. What well, stopped Bradley for a few moments, but then he pressed on, questioning the family's priorities and their wisdom, saying to the mother that they spend thousands of dollars going to Lourdes every year, and still there is no miracle. But looking at his loving, her loving daughter, the, the mother answered, oh, Mr. Bradley, don't you get it? We have our miracle. A commentator on Matthew's gospel reflects, Bradley had his expectations that the only miracle worth noticing, the only miracle that counted was the one that fit his definition. That girl would get out of her chair and walk. But he missed the miracle of the daughter's growing love for her father and her prayers for him. He missed the miracle of a family being held together by faith. He missed the miracle of joy growing in a soil that should not by any right sustain joy. God does not work in the world in ways that we expect because God's mercy and grace and resurrection break the bounds of our narrow imaginations. What don't we know that Easter teaches us? We are called to live a God-sized life. And that life needs to embrace a God-sized world, which is always larger, broader, deeper than our shallow imaginations. What don't we know that Easter teaches us? Something else that may seem obvious, but I think we need to say it out loud. We come to church, we come to faith, we come to Easter, to be changed. Michael Ventura in his book, Teacher as Healer, says the artist, the educator, the therapist walk different paths in different ways, but those paths meet at the intersection where the street sign says you must change your life. For we don't go to artist or educator or therapist to remain the same. We go to them to be given a vision and tools to go on. And going on always means to change. David Lowe has suggested that the same thing can be applied to church and faith and that sometimes we forget that. We don't come to faith. We don't come to church to remain the same. We, we come to church so we can change. Perhaps some people go to church to remain pricely the same. You know, to have preconceptions and prejudices affirmed, to be told that their black and white judgments line up really well with God's. But for those willing to give themselves over to a life of faith, we know that while life is beautiful, it is also incomplete. And that while we are capable of so many things, saving ourselves is not something we are capable of. And so why many motivations may lead us through the doors today to be in this place. Deep down, we come hoping to hear and experience something that will not just inform us and not just inspire us, but something that will change us, giving us a vision and tools to go on. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the scarred, risen Christ stood on a mountain 
and he sent his followers to all the places he had earlier told them to ignore. What happened? When you go into the full depths and death, Richard Rohr reminds us, God leads you out the other side and the word for that is resurrection. Something or someone builds a bridge for you between death and life, which is only recognizable from the far side. We are all carried across by uncreated and unearned grace from pope to president to princess to peasant. There are no exceptions to death and there are no exceptions to grace and I believe with good evidence there is no exception to resurrection. What happened in the Gospel of Matthew to go from this parochial insider message to a message of hope and life for everybody? What happened to Jesus who ends the Gospel with an urgency to reach out to the very ones he earlier excluded? What happens to us when a life looks predictable and safe and trapped all at once becomes the very garden of change and growth and life and hope? Well, by God's good and persistent presence, we come to learn that there are no exceptions to death and there are no exceptions to grace. And by the earthquake of Easter, we learn there are no exceptions to resurrection. What changed in Matthew's gospel, in Jesus, in us? Easter happened. That's what it was. Easter happened. And while this culture finds it very nearly impossible to say, I don't know, let us say clearly what we know for sure. There is no exception. There is no barrier. There is no limitation. There is no boundary to God's resurrection. That changed Jesus. That'll change you. That'll change me. And that will change the church. And then as church, we follow God to change the world. 